Hello, hello, what's up, what's good, ni hao, bonjour, privyet, welcome to the Any Given Runway Show, I'm your host, Randall Carlton Green, Any Given Runway celebrates exploration of new cultures by highlighting some of the most interesting, creative, artistic, and driven people in the world, everyone has a story, each person a scholar, ah, it's our last day of 2020, a memorable year to say the least, I always love December 31st, because of a story I was told when I was young, it's the day of the year where you get to see someone there's one guy walking around with as many noses as there are days in the air. Uh, it was a brilliant year on Any Given Runway. Thankful for all of the supportive listeners. The show was listened to and downloaded in over 50 countries, and we featured guests from over 40 different countries from a variety of careers and professions across the gamut, and excited to see what's next for 2021. With our last episode today, it is our final 2020 recap episode with two of the memorable guests from the year, NASCAR truck driver Jesse Uwuji. Starts us off, followed by Warrant Officer Jake Alpert, MBE, as he talks about leadership. Jesse Awuji ran track and participated in football at the U.S. Naval Academy. But following his collegiate career, he took a different competitive path and he entered the world of auto racing, which has also branched out to a broadcasting career in the same field. This is a driven human, someone whose relentless work ethic was installed in him at a young age as he was instructed to not let the family down. One thing I love about our conversation was that I've seen Jesse's career progress even in the short months that have passed. His racing career has continued to thrive, but his, his broadcast and announcing career has, has taken gigantic strides and he definitely has a unlimited future. You played football and ran track at the U.S. Naval Academy. I mean, just doing one collegiate sport is already amazing, but you did both Looking back on your career, what are some of your favorite memories with both teams? Yeah, so um, running track was really fun. A lot of people don't know I ran track, but yeah, I ran track at the Naval Academy. Um, you know, I, got, I ran basically all four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of my best experiences were probably when we have our Army-Navy meet. Um, anytime we had the Army-Navy meet, that was also great. Always great because it's just us versus Army. That's it. Nobody mm-hmm. else. Um, and uh, it was just straight up, you know, you versus the other person, you know, so um army was really really good at track so um you know they, they definitely had some wins over us um during those meets but uh, we fought pretty hard too to, to get what we could get out of it um as far as football um there's a ton of memories i mean we went to bowl games all four years yeah beat notre dame twice while i was there beat mm-hmm. for us all four years um we won our last bowl game uh, against missouri mm-hmm. uh, we, we just, like destroyed them yeah. <laughs> so, um blaine gabbert was a quarterback at that I saw time. that yeah yeah, a lot of great memories uh, at the academy. I would say my best football game was probably when I played against Air Force my sophomore year. I think I had like six tackles or so and a blocked field goal. Um, that was probably one of my best games. And then another great memory was when we played Ohio State in the horseshoe. That was just a really fun experience. Even though we didn't come away with the win, we got close. When you're going up against a juggernaut like Ohio State like that, and, and a lot of times you're kind of getting fed to the lines, and it's for a lot of players, it's just, I'm just happy to be here. What's that mindset? How do you balance? This is an amazing, awesome experience. I'm at the shoe. And I got to soak this up, but also let's not give them too much credit. Let's go out there and try to win this game as well. How do you balance that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it literally is just that right there. I mean, at first you get there, you're like, wow, I'm actually getting the opportunity to play yeah. a massive stadium against a team that has so much tradition, so much history, and is a good team. I mean, they were ranked number six in the country when we came in there to play. Um, it was a huge game with over 107,000 people in the stands. So to be able to be there and be playing on the field where you couldn't even hear the person next to you, you couldn't even hear someone no matter how hard, like uh, loud they yelled, you couldn't hear them. Um, it was pretty incredible. But at the same time, too, we knew that, hey, if we come out here and we go strong and we just have more effort and better effort than them, 
we've proven over the last few years we can beat big time teams. We've done it before. You know, we had beat uh, Notre Dame. We had beat you know beaten all these teams before that were bigger and better than mm-hmm. us. But um, anytime you go against those teams, usually what what it comes down to is they might have the five star athletes, but we have the five star heart players. You know, so that's huge, and heart goes a long way um, when you you know put it together with effort, grind, and just belief that you can make it happen. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm ready to go out and you know tackle somebody right now, man. I'm kind of getting fired up right now. But you, you talked about Army Navy track meets being wonderful, but we all know I got to ask you about the most iconic sporting event in the world, the Army Navy football game. Four times you played in this. Um, what were some of your emotions on those? What, actually, which one that stood out? Which was of the four years you played? Which was the one that stood out? Yeah, um, of the four we played, probably the last one. The last one, just because it was my last Army Navy football game, and I wanted to go out on a bang. I wanted to make sure that we won that game. Um, and just, you know, that just with everything around it and the Army-Navy game, the whole Army-Navy week, because it's, it's not just the game. There's a week. The moment the moment Sunday hits leading up until Army-Navy week, everything at the academy changes. The whole, like, the, the, the environment, the, um, the atmosphere, everything changes. People get into a crazy mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will beat Army. So that that if you feel the energy just from the midshipmen, it's not just the football team. Like yeah. literally the midshipmen. I mean, I think they're more hyped about it than we are. Like I mean, it, it gets wild at the academy. So you feel it immediately. You know, okay, it's game time. We can't let all four thousand of our midshipmen down. Like we have to go out there. We have to win. And and I think you know the reason why we beat Army. Um, you know, I think it was like a fourteen year streak or something like that. The reason why it was like that was because. When Navy, when we went into the game, we expected to win. Army went in there trying to win. We went in there expecting to win. There was no, there was no doubt. There was no other option in our mind. It was like cut the roast, you know, burn the ships. Like we're, we're winning. That's it. It's, I don't know what else there is. It's we're winning. So that's why we won so many games, and, and that's why we were able to beat them every single time. They're always um, a tough fight. They were never easy. Um, but uh, you know, once we got things rolling, I mean, it was just. Touchdown after touchdown. I, I love that you mentioned the burn the ships. I love that. I love that. And I think another great thing about the game is that it's it's the only game that weekend. Whereas for the previous twelve weeks, you got all these games, you got the conference championships, and then you just you're all to yourself. It's in Philly. It's at a neutral site, and usually the weather. Did you have any snow any of the four years? Uh, I believe. Oh uh, nine, right? Oh nine was I think it, I saw it. Didn't, no, it wasn't oh nine. It was I think the year before. Eight oh eight. Oh, wait, maybe it was 08. I think it was 08 we had some snow. Um, yeah, snow is interesting. I'm glad we have the, uh, the heated benches there. Heated benches are nice. When you go play at NFL stadiums, they have yeah. accommodations. I always just wonder. I used to see these NFL players. They wouldn't be wearing, like, yeah. you know, their armor or anything like that. And I'm like, how are they surviving out there at 20 degrees? And then I get to, you know, Philadelphia Eagles Stadium, and I find out, oh, these benches are so heated that, like, you could literally be sweating on them. I mean, that's how hot they get. So yeah. I mean, it rises up. So once you sit there, your whole body just warms up like instantly. So that helped a lot. But yeah, as you mentioned, yeah, it's the only game on that weekend, and it's the only game, um, or it's the only college football game on. I think there's yeah. NFL games on and stuff, but it's the only football game on that everyone in the game is willing to die for everyone watching. So that's that's the cool thing about that game. When it comes to you know a lot of a lot of big events, I always bring back alumni. So when it comes to Navy alumni, you got this lot of fantastic humans to pick from. Mm-hmm. Who were some of the guys that you were in awe of when they came to talk to your team in any of the four years? Yeah, so uh, Roger Staubach, uh, he yeah. came to us, I think, my freshman year there yeah. at the academy, uh, right before Notre Dame. I remember he told us, <laughs> 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 he 
like, it was like if, all, he's like, if y'all win this game after you all graduate, I'm buying all of you cars, you know. <laughs> yeah, we got to win this game. And then we didn't win the first game, but we won the next year. And I was like, oh, man, I wish he just came back the next year. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, no, um, yeah, Roger Staubach. Um, I never got to meet David. Still to this day, I've never gotten to meet David Robinson. I need to make that happen. Um, yeah, like everyone else has bet him except me. Uh, some other people, um, Brian Stan, um, uh, a lot of great people I've gotten to meet while at the Naval Academy. I'm just an alumni who've done some great things in this world and still doing great things. But um, yeah, uh, Roger Staubach definitely one of the, one of the coolest. <laughs> oh, well, and David Robinson, you hear that? You got to come meet my guy here. He's, he's waiting for you. Your Naval career t- has taken you around the world and it helped foster discipline and a strong mentality for, for the rest of your life. When I say just the words U.S. Navy or Navy, Naval Academy, what are the first thoughts that come to your mind? Um, for the Naval Academy, when you say it, the first thoughts is like discipline. Um, that's, you know, the biggest thing we learn at the Academy is discipline. Um, you know, we're all, we all come in there 18 years old or so, some, some people a little bit older, and um, we all come from different walks of life, all different kind of backgrounds, all different kind of cities. You know, every single state in the country and a lot of other countries in the world are represented at the Naval Academy. We come from all different places, but the first thing we learn is, is discipline. We learn how to take care of each other, how to lead each other, how to, um, you know, just be there for your shipmate. Um, at the end of the day, we're all in it together. You know, one team, one fight. Um, we can't, a bunch of individuals can't win a battle, but if we all come together, we all have different talents we can put together. As long as we can, can conform with the same rules, we can make a lot of stuff happen. So you learn all that when you get to the academy, and um, all everything I've learned there, I've been able to translate to everything else I've done in life, whether it was on the football field or in classes or with our with our you know fellowship mates and our companies. Um, all that stuff, all the relationships, everything. I mean, you know, I had a lot of friends in high school, but once I went off to college to the Naval Academy. Um, all that, like, you know, changed. Like, my yeah. new best friends, my new people that are still my friends till today, um, you know, are, are my Naval Academy um, classmates. Very cool. Very cool. Very amazing. Your interest in racing actually began while you were in college. Uh, despite arriving to the sport later than most, you quickly became a professional driver. How were you able to find success so quick? And during that time, who helped you early on? Yeah, so um, for me, getting into racing is it, definitely, it's not easy at all. Um, racing can be pricey. It costs a lot of money to get in to race. I mean, you know, nothing's free. You know, tires aren't free. Um, your team isn't free. You know, getting people to haul vehicles and equipment to the track, none of that's free. Like, it all costs money. So, for me, the biggest thing I had to learn early was how do I find the funding so that I can actually get on track? So, um, that took a lot of work, but it took a lot of networking. That was the biggest thing was networking with people who could connect me to folks who are in a position in life where they could help me financially, um, you know, whether it's sponsorship or whatever, something. Um, that was huge. So for me to be able to find any kind of success and be able to move the ladder, ladder of NASCAR, I had to find that funding. For, um, during my first year in racing, when I started racing late model stock cars, um, I started my own small business um, early that year and I grew that to help me raise extra funds. Um, I did a lot of networking uh, to find uh, my first sponsorship deal that I had that year, which you know, covered about half my season in late models. Um, going into my second year of racing, um, most of that season was covered by um, funds that I, that I raised or that I made from my my, my small business that I had. Um, going into 2017, you know, the business handled a lot of it, and I had sponsorship to cover the other half of it. Going into 2018, I had a, a great agent, you know, who is still my agent today, Matt Castle. Um, you know, he was able to find different deals where he was able to connect me with different companies, partner us up with different companies. And I could do a lot of marketing campaigns with them to help them out. Also on my end, you know, be able to 
get on track to race. So all that stuff is really crucial to be able to race. At the end of the day, if you don't have the funds to do it, it's just hard, you know. Um, uh, that's what I've been focusing on. And then while focusing on it, I just do my best to figure out ways to get better as a driver on track. When it comes to fundraising, you're going to get rejection a lot. Unfortunately, it's part of it. The rejection, what has that taught you going forward in your career? Oh, yeah. Rejection happens a lot, especially my first year racing. I really, really learned how to take rejection. <laughs> you feel like a thousand no's before you get your first yes. I, remember, I actually remember I went to a restaurant and uh, there's a lady who owned it. Um, pretty well-off restaurant and um, her son raced her and then um, uh, I basically came in to try to you know, give her a sponsorship proposal and see if she could sponsor me and um, basically after the whole talk she pretty much you know summarizing it said you know I'm pretty much not going to make it unless I have rich parents um, I was like what the heck and then I just in my mind I was like I am not going to let this deter me at all I'm like, screw that. I had a vision in my head that I was going to become a race car driver. I'm going to be one. I'm going to be a professional. I'm going to race. I'm going to race on TV. I'm going to do all that stuff. And I'm not going to let her words bring me back. Because too many times, we all have, we, everyone in the world has a dream. We all have a vision of what we should be or what we can be. And most people never make it, not because they just can't do it, but because their mind, it's in their mindset. Like people, too many people around them in their circle are trying to bring them down and telling them and basically like lower their, lower their expectations be like, Hey, don't, don't, don't think so high, just aim here. And, and, and the thing is like the reason why people don't make it to their goals, the reason why people don't achieve whatever they want to achieve is not because they aim too high and miss is because they shoot too low and hit. And, and for me, I was like, I'm not going to shoot. I'm not going to let you, your, your, um, I'm not going to let your opinion of my reality, um, you know, or your opinion of me become my reality. And for me, that's a thing, something I learned from Les Brown. You know, he said, you know, never let someone's opinion of you become your reality. And ever since I heard that, I was like, you know, I'm not going to let this lady, you know, disturb me. Like what she said, her opinion of, of where I'm going to go or what my life's going to be after this, not happening. I'm making it. That's it. I already cut the ships and freaking going. Burn the ships, exactly. Now, I know that you're saying that that's what you intended to do, but it's not easy. It's not something they can easy. I know there's going to be days that are difficult. There's days where you probably woke up and said, you know what? She's right. She's right. What did you do when those days occurred? How did you, how did you break out of slumps when they happened? So those days happen every other day. <laughs> <laughs> Even through now, there's a lot of days I'm like, gosh, darn it. Like, how am I going to make it till tomorrow? Like, what am I going to do? How do I get to the next race? Am I going to race this year? Like, I don't know. Um, but when those days happen, you have to remember that even at the darkest point of the night, the sun will still rise. Life is a cycle. Like it goes up and down and up and down. You have to understand that the downs happen. When they happen, just understand that you will get back up to the top. Like it's going to happen. You just got to grind through. You got to push through. You have to understand when you step into that tunnel, like there is an end to the tunnel. There is an opening. There is a lot of sunlight at the end of the tunnel. But at the beginning, you can't see it. It's pitch black. You can't see it. That's where faith comes into play. Faith is just understanding and believing that I'm going to walk through this super dark tunnel that I can't see anything, but I fully believe that there's going to come a point where light will finally show and I can get out of it. Like it's going to happen. But too many people step into the tunnel, don't see anything, don't even see a, any type of shimmer. And all of a sudden, like, I can't do it. Like there's no way. There's no shimmer. It doesn't matter. That's where faith comes to play. Faith means I believe there is a shimmer that I can't see right now. 
It's just I can't see it right now. It's okay. I can't see it right now, but I will. As long as I push forward, keep grinding, I'm going to get there. And that's what I think of every single time I have those days where it's like, oh my God, like, you know, how am I going to come up with the money to do this? How am I going to do this? Oh my goodness. Like we just had a crash and now I got to pay for it. How am I going to do that? All that stuff. I have to understand that, Hey, like there is going to be a better day when a bad thing happens, a better day is coming. Setback is only set up for a phenomenal comeback. Good comeback yeah. And I like your point on, on the cycle because to go one step further, it is actually, you mentioned go, it's dark before it comes light, but it's also the darkest before it, it comes light. You're now the driver of the number 34 truck in the NASCAR truck series. How does the excitement of race day compare to the, the football days? Yeah, um, definitely on, on race days are pretty exciting, it, but it's so weird because um, I treat them kind of opposite. So um, on football, football games, you know, I get super pumped, I get super amped because you need that energy because you're about to go out there on a field and you have, you know, 11 other grown men who are all bigger than me. Uh, a lot of them faster than me and I have to go out there and I got to hit someone in the mouth and I got to hit them hard and I got to put everything in my body into someone and take them out over and over and over. That, that's tough. You have to have the energy up to do it. So, you know, I get really, really amped for that. Now, as far as um, uh, racing, I'm not going out there to just take people out and things like that. Like I got to go out there and actually not take people out. I can't get to the end of the race. So um, you, I, I try to calm myself down as much as possible and get down to a point where, okay, I'm super focused. My mind is, is like laser beam focused, but um, I'm calm and cool, collected, and I'm being smooth. You know, so, so when I get in a race car, I'm almost at a point where I want to fall asleep. I actually got to drink a little energy drink right before I even race because, um, like, I'll just be like, eh. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but I have to get myself down that level, so I'm just super calm, cool, collected, and can focus. You can't be too amped up or you'll, you'll overdrive the car. Well, you mentioned that being in football, you, were, you did have to be amped up. So this was something new. So it, the mental practices as being calm is something new to your life. How did you make that transition? What were some of the practices you did day by day? to make yourself calm, to get yourself focused in the moment? Yeah, so um, it takes a lot of repetition to figure it out. So for me, I have a racing simulator at home. Um, oh. Ever since I got into racing, um, you know, I bought one, uh, you know, I bought one in uh, February or so of 2015. Um, and that was about two months before my first ever race in anything. And I trained myself on it every single day. And since then, I every, pretty much every single week, I train on my racing simulator. I do laps after laps after laps every single day. Um, usually 100 plus laps a day and um, when I'm doing that you know I'm training myself repetition I'm training myself muscle memory I'm training myself how to stay calm cool collected and smooth on a track and I'm doing all that stuff every single day to really work on like me and work on my driving skills and and that stuff translates over to the real life race car like if I wasn't training all the time then I'd be sporadic all the time on the track in order to have an interesting and diverse life one has to be interested and one has to be excited to wake up every morning to really get after the day how do you wake up excited? Who motivates you? What motivates you? My, my whys. My whys motivate me. My why, I'm like, why I want to succeed, why I want to get to where I want to go. Those motivate me. And my whys kind of stem from a little bit of fear. Um, it's from the fear of not being successful. Um, I, I don't ever not want to, I don't ever want to like not be successful. Like I want to succeed in everything I do. I, I don't want to fail, but the only true way to fail is if you quit. So basically I just don't want to quit. Um, so that kind of drives me right there. Like me thinking each day, like, Hey, like, like it could literally be the end of everything for me. Like today, I, like, or tomorrow, like I got to figure this out right now. So that's why I just work hard every single day and I grind. And, and for me, um, you know, one of my models is, um, 
you know, prepared for the fight that you don't even know is coming. And that's what I do every single day. Every day I'm trying to prepare for the fight I don't even know is coming. Because that fight comes, and it comes all the time. And you don't even know what it's about to be. You don't even know when it's coming or what it's going to be, who it's going to be, but it comes. So because of that, um, prepare for that fight you don't even know is coming. When I do that every single day, that's what kind of drives me every morning. And, and I work for myself. You know, I decided a year and a half ago, two years ago, whatever, um, that I, I didn't want to be an employee anymore. Right? I didn't want to work, go to the office every single day and do all that stuff. I'll work for the government and the Navy because I'm in the reserves. I'll do that. That's cool. But I can't work for anybody else outside of that. Um, I just wanted to be in a position where I could have, you know, freedom to do everything I wanted to do, crying for me. And that pushes me. And ever since I made that decision, I get up earlier than when I did when I worked for someone. I, I work a lot later now than when I did before. But it's fun. Completely cool with them. Completely cool with working from seven something in the morning till midnight every single day. I'm completely fine with that. I'll do that every single day. Then work eight hours for somebody else and help them make millions when I'm not doing that. Yeah. That's a tremendous human right there. If you want to hear the entire conversation, go back and check out episode 126, first released on July 15th. Next up, Warrant Officer Jake Alpert. He's our first active duty military member that we featured on the show, and it was the most popular episode of the year. I received more downloads than any other guest, and I think the main reason is because what a stand-up human Jake is. His views on leadership are incredibly progressive. He believes in the idea of 360-degree leadership, which means listening and taking advice to all different types of people that he works with, from those who rank higher, but also who those rank lower. He values the past leaders in his lives, and, and he makes it a point to always lead by example and, and to do the small things. He's very meticulous in his planning, and everything he does is with purpose, and I admire that so much. How do you balance honesty when it comes to admitting when you're wrong? Because I know that can be difficult when in any position, any position of leadership, when you want people to follow, you want them to not question your orders, but at the same time, if you do make a mistake, people who are following you love when people actually admit their problems. I see so many times that leaders don't acknowledge their problems. They just say, no, do, this is what I said, this is how it's doing. So how do you balance that? I think it's always uh, looking for feedback. You know, I, I'll always ask for feedback, even if it's from my subordinates, from the young aviators. I have a I have a reverse mentor who's actually only a corporal, who's about you know three or four ranks down from myself. Who I ask for feedback, it's first name terms, and I think by doing that, that, that I think you look at your own style and to make sure that you, you're doing the right thing. And then the other thing is, is that you talk about making mistakes. What making mistakes is a good thing. I think when you employ mission command in an organization and you give people the bandwidth to operate and make their own decisions and to be quite creative to what they do on a daily basis, then I think you get more, more respect from that as well. And that works pretty well for your people to respond to it. And, and, thing, and I think greatness comes out of making mistakes as well. Yeah. And when we look at the way we operate in the future, whether it's in space, cyber information, that you know sometimes goodness comes out of them operating spaces. If we do make a mistake, we learn by it. Right, we identify it and then we move on and then uh, we carry on with the mission. Yeah, I love, I love how you're saying you got to have someone that you can give the feedback, the honest feedback from. It. And I always yeah. like to talk about it as having, uh, having allies, people who are going to support you uh, no matter what. In terms of leadership, how do you personally stay sharp? Because successful leaders change, change often, times change all the time. What do you do to make sure that you're constantly improving your leadership? Um, I think... I think we do something called a 360 feedback. 
so that sort of canvases the organization of people who work above you below you and beside you at the same time so they'll do a bit of a questionnaire and, and then you'll get that feedback hmm. i think there's a little bit of that so i think uh, on receipt of that that keeps me sharp but i think i've got my own self-optimization and what i mean by that is that personal fitness uh, that is really good for my own stress management and volume of work and what i deal with okay, to get that sort of white space of thinking. So I really, really search that, and I do treasure it when I get that uh, opportunity. And then the other thing is it comes into everything. It comes into your sleep. It comes into your, you know, your, your healthy eating. Yeah. And, and the way you live your life and your lifestyle, you know, I'm an unsmoker, I don't drink. You know, I'm focused on the force, you know, and it, it's aviators, it's the people that are all Air Force who come first for me. Uh, and like anything, you know, if, if I'm an acuter, to get some food that I'll always let the, the other ranks go before me and I eat, I eat last. Mm. I've always lived off them sort of codes of honour and then principles of, of being a, a warrant officer in the Royal Air Force. So staying sharp, you know, and, and it's not just about me. I think staying sharp comes from a family as well. I mean, my wife is so understanding and she really, really supports me to be able to do what I do. And, uh, and that's staying sharp. So I always feel that there's two elements of it. Obviously, there's yourself. But I think your family supports you as well and gives you that sort of uh, that support to be able to do what you want to do on a daily basis and, and be there for you in times of need. Ah, that's incredible to hear. Do you feel that you're able to stay sharp and able to do things maybe when you don't want to do them and able to have this, this deep motivation discipline because you are practicing servant leadership in the sense of I think so many times when people are struggling maybe to get up in the morning, if they can place, hey, I need to go on this run, but I'm going to do this run for something else if they can put their responsibilities on something else as a servant you think that helps you out uh, without a doubt you know there's a number of activities i've done throughout the year you know i've run a half marathon uh, just uh, just before thanksgiving christmas time uh, and that was to raise money for the uh, you know for the for the central fund which we supports uh, our you know uh, aviators and officers across the royal air force uh, and it, in times of need and, and in sport as well. And I'm, I've got a marathon, which I'm, I'm sort of tuned into, which is going to take place on the 4th of October. And I've already raised, you know, your equivalent of about $750, $800 already. And I've got a target to do that. And that really drives me that because um, I get a lot of euphoria out of it because when I've finished it, the money I've made actually goes to people in need in times yeah. of need across the service. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there who have been exposed to some bad things on operations or just need that helping hand uh, from the service charities of the Royal Air Force. And it, it's really important for me uh, to do something for them. And, and plus it keeps me sharp at the same time. So that's my sort of connection to that and keeps me motivated. Love it. Is this the London Marathon? Uh, yes, it got cancelled because yeah. obviously it was the epidemic. So it's been delayed uh, till the 4th of October. But if it doesn't happen, I'm just going to run it on my own anyway. And I'm still going to raise the money as the best I can because obviously, you know, you've got the two meter social distancing and everything which is currently in place. And uh, I've got to be really surgical at everything we do to sort of safeguard everybody else around me. So uh, that's what I'll do on, when the moment comes anyway. Now, is this, this is not marathon number one, right? You've done one before? Yeah, I've done a few marathons throughout my career. So I've had a great uh, sporting career whilst I've been in the Air Force. You know, I boxed for the Air Force, ran for the Air Force, skied for the Air Force. So I've had a, and, and that's just probably a, a bit of a, an example of what life's like in the Armed Forces and both in the Royal Air Force. And that's been great for me. You know, it's kept me fit. And, you know, the, the Armed Forces or, you know, the Royal Air Force just gives you so many opportunities, whether it's education, you know, it's fitness, sports, 
everything. There's just loads of things out there for people to do uh, beyond their normal sort of trade or branch or profession. How are you feeling though for this marathon? You you in great shape? Uh, I'm okay. So uh, I got to the 16 mile point. I was training, so I was putting two miles or you know three, four k's on every week. But uh, obviously, when it got cancelled, I sort of took my foot off the accelerator of a course. bit. Of yeah. course, my training cycle. So I'm just doing. Uh, 10 to 12 miles, maybe, you know, uh, equivalent in kilometers, about 18 Ks every weekend on a Sunday, uh, just to keep me sort of conditioned to do the marathon. But as it closes in August time, September, I'll start getting back in the game to uh, raise my mileage to make sure that uh, I complete it in a, in a decent time. How can someone donate to your cause? Uh, it's just giving. Uh, there's a website out there. So usually uh, I usually send uh, a tweet uh, with a link on it. Or okay. I'll tweet it or I'll send something through Instagram. And then people will just get the opportunity to, to donate some money. And, and when I start to travel the Air Force, and I'll, I'll, I'll have a few tins and say, do you want to just give us a donation, you know, when I'm sort of doing a presentation or anything like that? So that's what I'll do. And I'll promote it that way. And my assistant's really good that she'll really help me with that. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to you. I can't wait to hear your time. Your deployments took you all across the world, often to places in conflict. So what have you noticed about the similarities and the differences of people around the world, especially in those regions of conflict? I'd say that um, throughout my career, I've done around 13 operational tours, and it's pretty hard to, to remember most of them. But I'd say when you look at you know, similar cultures across across different countries is that what's been quite interesting, I spent over two years in Afghanistan in, in total and uh, I've done various different roles and, and Afghanistan's quite an interesting country and when you go from the north to the south and you talk about different cultures, it's quite tribal. So you can have Barakzai, Papazai and, and the Pashtun Code and people operate in a different sort of view, whether it's in a, like a high volumed populated area like Kabul or Kandahar and things like that which is I found very very interesting and then when you sort of transfer across the Middle East and you go to somewhere like Iraq then there is some similarities between religious beliefs and things like that so I would say that that's where I've sort of I've seen that or experienced that at the same time for my own cultural awareness when I've been on operations and I think where I found it really, really interesting is, is up in the Baltic states, mm. uh, places like uh, Poland, Lithuania, uh, places like that, and Estonia especially, you know, which is, which is on the border of Russia. Mm. And, uh, you know, 24-7, you know, with, with NATO that we operate, you know, on the border of that. Uh, and that's quite interesting. And I'd say that, you know, when you go back in history, you know, from the Russian occupation, and then you look at the, the population today for what it was, you know, 40, 50 years ago or post-war, that, that's been very, very interesting to, to look at the, the dynamics of people who, who are pretty tough, I'd say, and have got great resilience and, and the, the, the great, you know, the great support of the alliance as well of NATO. So that's probably where I'd say where I found, uh, you know, the population is really close and the dynamics of people that has been very, very interesting. And do you feel that by seeing these other cultures that it does help you as a leader because you've now seen different individuals? Without a doubt, you know, even when I've operated with my international partners, whether it's the United States of America, you know, we've got a great partnership with the US, uh, you know, and we talk about you know, the Baltic states and, and the 29 nations of NATO. So uh, I've been very, very lucky, uh, really, and honoured to work alongside some of the different nations, both in operations as well. You know, when I've been in Afghanistan, I work with Estonians, 
Danes and, and all different sort of cultures as well. And, and to be really exposed to that has been really refreshing throughout my career. Has it helped me? Uh, of course it had helped me because, um, you know, it's broadened my view and my aperture of, of, of the way different nations operate together uh, in times of need. Oh, and I can tell that you care and you have a profound appreciation of different cultures, which I think is an incredible quality for anyone, especially a leader. Deployments, they're part of the job, and you'll always treat them with professionalism as part of your duty. But however, being away from home is mentally, emotionally draining. So during those times of deployment, how do you keep yourself both mentally and emotionally strong, but also the airmen around you? Well, firstly, uh, deployment's a part of my job, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, I think when you join the you know, the armed forces or the Royal Air Force, you're expected to go away. At some stage throughout your career, you know, I've had a very, very, uh, I've had a a great career, 32 years in the Air Force, and and in that time you are going to go away. But undoubtedly, I think, I think when you look at deployments is that, you know, we put people in in arms way every day. Uh, And from that, that's really important, both in, you know, in the air uh, and on the ground. So I'd say that my personal discipline rubs off on, on all my subordinates and my peer group as a, a sort of go on deployments. But I think when you talk about mentally being away, that I would say that uh, we are conditioned for that mm. uh, to a certain extent of the way we're prepared to go on operations. Uh, and from that, we, we are emotionally strong because we have to be, because you know we have to keep focused on the mission and what we need to achieve uh, whilst we're deployed at home and overseas. But the other thing is, is that I think all the systems we do back in the UK, support systems from welfare, uh, you know, families and things like that, that that we're really, really good at that now. And we've got a lot of support services out there to support the families whilst you're away on operations. And if you are, the operation's pretty easy because we've all got to take, take, you know, take into account of what it's like, you know, for your partner for your children, for your spouse while they're waiting for you because, you know, seven or eight months is a long time uh, to be away and it can be quite difficult as well working long hours and uh, in, ha- in harsh conditions. So for me, uh, that's what's really important. Mm. When it comes to leadership, what do you know now that you wish you had known when you were in a first position of leadership? I think for me, uh, because of my background, I've been very, very mission-focused and I if you ask me if I could change anything, I'd probably like to have shown more affection uh, to the people around me. And I didn't really do that. And I think I had to take stock and check myself uh, on occasion of, of, of climbed the rank structure and go, do you know what? I need to, I need to look at my people more. I need to understand them a little bit more. I need to look at the welfare. I need to make sure that they're supported both emotionally and physically. So that's really brought it to my attention. And I went on a course um, around, five, six years ago, and it was an emerging leaders course, and I did the 360 feedback, and I fed that into the system, and it came up with an affection, and we all don't like criticism, and I read it, and I was like, wow, is that me? And it really brought my attention to focus on the people, and ever since that moment, and I know it might have seemed a little bit late, is that um, I really, really tried to sort of uh, focus on on people's needs and really support the team and offer my affection Uh, to them to make sure that they can do what they do on a daily basis. I know why leadership is important to you. I was going to ask why it's important to you, but I'd like to change that question to what do you enjoy most about being a leader? I don't think being a leader is about me. I think it's about everybody else. 
I think it's about trying to create the opportunities uh, within the Royal Air Force for everybody to succeed. Mm. And when I, you know, we have a phase one training establishment, which is about 30 minutes drive from me. And when I see that graduation of them young aviators graduating for the first time and joining the Royal Air Force, that's really what drives me and gets me out of bed in the morning. So I don't think anything, um, I don't think it's about me. I think it's about everybody around me because I, I you know, I've succeeded even though, I'm the chief of the air staff's warrant officer, you know, I'm the senior warrant officer of the Royal Air Force. But, but I don't really feel that uh, because I do what I do on a daily basis. I do it with purpose and I do it, I do it for everybody around me. And I am, I am very emotionally connected to the service and it's really important for me uh, of, what, of what opportunities are out there and to, and to make sure that their health and well-being is self-guarded if it's health, uh, mental health, if it's allowances, if it's, I can do whatever I can within my powers and, and support my commander at the same time to be that person on his shoulder going, we, we need to focus on our people. We need to look at this. And yeah. that's what I, I feel I am as a leader uh, today. Yeah. So who are the leaders that have been important in your life? Right. It's a good question. And uh, <laughs> who I do really um, aspire um, or who gives me some uh, great inspiration is somebody called General Eisenhower, right? Yeah. The reason behind that, because what a phenomenal person. Uh, and he's probably, I think, back in history, he was the only five-star officer who, who actually, you know, did, was the brains behind the, the, the D-Day landings in Normandy yeah. in the 44 and 45. And... Uh, and what a great man, because the thing is, you know, even operating in NATO and it's very, very difficult to, to work with other nations. But when he when he sort of converged commands together, like General Montgomery, you know, um, I think it was um, uh, Chief Marshal Tedder was there. And there was a lot of people in that command group to do that and orchestrate that, which probably changed the world forever. OK, and brought freedom to Europe. And that was a big ask, because to make decisions like that, it takes a lot of courage and, and, it, and the, the moral courage that that man must have had on that day that I can't probably, I can't put it into words. And then I think it moves on from that because he, he, he was the first NATO commander in 1953, I, th I believe, to 1961. And then for a, for a long period of time, he became the president of the United States. Yeah. So if you want to talk about a resume, <laughs> that is a resume. And, and I don't think there's anybody across the world who probably could capture that or who could match it. Not even Muhammad Ali couldn't do that. So, so, so for me, uh, what a great man. But what I'd say as well of, of people who have been important to me uh, throughout my career, I have got my idols from if it's, uh, if it's a warrant officer, if it's, if it's a chief of the air staff, or if it's one of the three stars, or if, even if it's a corporal that really, you know, I, they give me inspiration anyway because there's, there's so much talent out there where I look at it and go, wow, you know, you are going to be somebody special yeah, mm. for the Royal Air Force. And, and I see that on a daily basis and, and it really, really uh, empowers me to do what I do, um, you know, for the Royal Air Force. But on top of that is that I think, you know, there's been some really um, great people and what I'd say is, like I mentioned it in the beginning, you know, my grandfather's been a great person and, and my father's been a great leader. So uh, to lead me to, to, to sit here and have this conversation with you. So there's the great people in my life. Uh, what a terrific answer, because you have people from the past, 
Yeah, the future, the current. Yeah, I love that. It's like 360 degrees that you talked about, Abel, to have yeah. people that inspire you above you, but also cool. below you as well. And I think that's so important because you're basically respecting every individual and seeing the importance of every individual. Now, you were awarded an MBE. What a fantastic yes. honor. What are some of your favorite memories from the event? Well, I'll be honest. I think the MBE is not for me. I think it's for my mother. I think it was for my family at the same time. Um, it was quite a, an emotional day, I'll be honest with you. And uh, as we actually speak, I just got, I think the hair stood up. Love it, love it. Oh, wow. So that's your <laughs> fault. I'll, I'll take credit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, but with that, you know, my, my mother's 83 and my auntie's 85, yeah. And I took him to, you know, they spent the day at Buckingham Palace and uh, Prince Charles presented the MBE and stuff like that. But if it wasn't for my mother, or if it wasn't for my auntie and my wife, they're the medal winners, because it's not me, because, you know, my success comes from them, uh, because of the way they brought me up, the way they supported me, you know, my wife to date, you know, she is so patient, and, and she, put, she supports me in a, in a great way. So I think the day was more about them than it was me, uh, you know, the medal's the medal, but, it, but it, it, it's because of them, uh, that's why I got the medal. What a fantastic answer. I respect that so much. One of my favorite things I've heard this year, what is mom's name? Uh, Patricia. Hello, Patricia. So you did a great job, Patricia. Probably should probably capture this at some stage anyway. I love it. But it actually, I didn't really expect it yeah. at all. It caught me out. And uh, my commander at the time, uh, if, he ever, if, if he ever listens to the podcast, which is Air Marshal Evans, I walked in his office and he had a bottle of champagne and he said, congratulations, you've just been awarded an MBE. So then, uh, you know, when you look around the room and you look for somebody else that it's been awarded for, but it was actually me on that day. So I was really taken away and it's uh, a great honor to be uh, awarded an MBE. Um, fantastic. Are you a reader? And if so, do you have any recent book recommendations? Yeah. Um, the one I'm currently reading at the minute is that uh, it's called Burning and it's, uh, it's by P.W. Singer and it's uh, a novel uh, for real robotic futures. So it's a little bit like 15 years in front. It's quite futuristic, uh, artificial intelligence and stuff like that. But it's really connected to the way uh, defences moving forward is we're, the way we're going to operate in different domains in the future. So I think it's right for me to, to sort of look at that because it, within the Royal Air Force, we've got something called Astra. You were building the next generation Air Force, which is trying to really look out and reach out of what the Royal Air Force the way it's going to generate and operate in 15 years time that's pretty hard to predict mm -hmm. but i thought a, a, a decent book like this is a great start for me and then i've just completed another book which is um it's it's funny you should say that it's the 13 days so it's uh, john f uh, kennedy's book from the, the memoirs of the cuban missile crisis and that was really taken away by leadership as well of of such a, a quite a quite a difficult time I'd say for the United States and Russia when they occupied Cuba and everything yeah. that was some really good takeaways for me when they put the blockade out and and the way all the the Department of Defense dealt with it and the Secretary of State and and all that type of business of how he sort of led his people through that and and it was really interesting because it really really chimes with the uh, 15 uh, ways of strategic thinking and that technological paranoia and all the things which come behind it so uh, i found it, it was quite a short read but i found it really really interesting and the, and the dynamics between the, the personalities in the book so it was a, a yeah. great read 
Well, I love that you're reading a fiction book to give you potential ideas for the future because a lot of times science fiction becomes fact. It becomes, and that's where we get our ideas from. We, um, when you're designing, when engineers are designing things, sometimes they go to fiction to find out, well, what are people dreaming about? What are the opportunities? Would you uh, lift up that book so I can see the cover? Yeah, so that's the 13 days I've got that one. That's ah. cute. What I've got with me. It's at home at my bedside table. Yeah, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick them both up. Uh, Jake, absolutely thrilled for you being on the show today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I admire, I admire your career and I admire your, your outlook on leadership. I, I, I really, truly appreciate the 360 aspect. I think that's something that any listener can take with them. How can people stay up to date with uh, your leadership advice and also your marathon trek? Uh, if you just follow me on Twitter, yeah, if you just put Caswell in there, Chief of the Air Staff's Warrant Officer, uh, Royal Air Force, you'll find me online. I'll be there somewhere. The same uh, is on Instagram. So I do tweet uh, quite a lot, maybe, you know, the frequency. It depends what's happening there mm-hmm. and then sort of put something out there. So it's a great platform, but it's, uh, it depends which age group you're trying to target because I think my daughter tells me that Facebook is for old people. Twitter's between the age of, I think, 35 to 45, and Instagram's the new, the new way to go. So I'm really, really pressing into uh, Instagram to try and sort of really uh, prod the Generation X out there to, <laughs> to get the next Generation Air Force looking at the Royal Air Force. So oh, you, uh, yeah. that's where I'm at. But uh, yeah, please follow me. And, and then with the London Marathon, I'll keep pushing. Yeah, because it's all about raising money for our people uh, in times of need, and that's really important for me. And what are the organizations you're raising money for? Uh, it's called the uh, Royal Air Force Association, which okay. is a, a charity designed to help people, uh, the RF family in times of need. So that's what it's designed for. It does uh, loads and loads of different things and uh, helps veterans as well, which is really important as well because we've still got them people who've, you know, past and present who've, who've served the nation and done some great things and, and been very, very brave in what they've done. And, you know, we highlighted the Second World War you know, of what people did in them days. And it, and it does raise an eyebrow because they're, they're outstanding and honorable people. So we need to make sure that we do keep the recognition of them and identifying them and support them as well at the same time. Another amazing human. And, and it was probably the best person to finish up the year. To listen to the conversation in its entirety, check out episode 142, first released July 28th, 2020. We'll pick this up tomorrow in the brand new year with brand new episodes thankful appreciate all of you my new book curiosity is currently available on amazon curiosity celebrates the knowledge that strangers have to offer everyone has unique expertise and endless wisdom awaits the perpetually curious featuring 200 episodes from the any given runway show curiosity explores the diverse lives of athletes adventurers and performers from daring voyages across the atlantic to unforgettable performances in the west end curiosity celebrates the sophisticated thing we call life everyone has a story each person a scholar Thank you for listening. Fill up that passport. I'll see you on the road. Aviento.